Hi everyone, welcome to How Can I Heal podcast with Krina Okumus. This is an interview series with people that I admire and really made a change in my life. We are exploring questions about life, dreams, how can I be more happy and healthy and learn how can we deal with pressure or challenges in the private or professional life. I really hope you take a nuggets of wisdom or two and you are improving your own life for the better. I'm super happy to let you know that on today's podcast, I'm speaking with James Schmachtenberger. James is a successful serial entrepreneur with a lifelong focus on using business and innovation to effect large-scale change for the benefit of humanity. Throughout his career, he created several companies in natural and integrative medicine, wrote legislation to improve prohibitionary laws, produced award-winning documentaries, and founded some of the top companies in education, cannabis, and human performance. Be kind to yourself. I think that so many of us, as we start to go down our healing journeys, and particularly if we're going down journeys where there's a lot of trauma to heal or we're, we're trying to battle our demons, we can have a tendency of becoming really critical on ourselves. And the criticalness often actually reinforces the pain. And, you know, what, what we understand of human behavior or really any mammal behaviors, people respond better to positive reinforcement than they do to negative. And so I think that being really kind to oneself when on the healing journey and going out of your way to really appreciate and celebrate yourself for all the steps that you take, more so than you focus on beating yourself up for all the steps that you miss, is a really important part of how to progress through all kinds of challenges. And now, let's get to my conversation with the amazing James Schmachtenberger. Hello, James. Thank you so much for taking time for me today. Hey, Karina. Yeah, thank you for having me on today. First thing, um, I have to tell you something uh, that maybe it will, shock, it will shock many, but they will understand probably at the end of the interview. If I would not be married, I will definitely ask you to get married me as soon as possible. And I'm sure many of, of the listeners will understand why at the end of the interview. That might be the best intro I've ever had for a podcast. <laughs> um, yeah, we, we will, the, our listeners, they will understand more. Um, so I will make everyone curious why. Um, but let's start with the beginning. A little bit of the beginning and let's go back with the when you are 10 years old and when you are really interesting to find solutions about problems in the world can you tell us a little bit more about your life back then yeah yeah happy to so you know i, I was very fortunate to have a pretty weird upbringing um but for the most part weird in very good ways my parents when they had my brother and I, being a parent became a very deep calling for them. And it was something that they wanted to really devote to. And in the sort of inquiry process of how do we become great parents, they looked around and they said, well, we don't actually see any models that are interesting. Everything that people are doing seems to be somewhat damaging and doesn't carry the uniquenesses of children through. So we're basically going to treat parenting as an experiment. And we're going to try a bunch of things that no one's ever done before and hope that some of it works. 
So and so that was kind of the the tone for my childhood. You so know, and obviously lucky. like with any kind of experimentation. Absolutely. To have such a cool Yeah, it approaches gave me a just really unique set of experiences where like, you know, for one, one they always wanted us to have a very deep understanding of the world from a lot of different perspectives. Um, and you know, not to be beholden to a particular ideology. And so like very early on in life, uh, my parents started introducing us to various different religions. And my dad was more oriented to were there pieces that seemed dogmatic and you know, particularly starting to look for, were there certain things that showed up across all the different world's religions? And if so, is that indicative of them actually being fundamental truths? And so like that was a particular lens and experience we got to have. And then as part of that process of becoming sort of increasingly aware of different religions, cultures, people, and what the similarities are, what the differences are, what creates conflict, then that started to open the door to wanting to do things about it. And so at a pretty young age, got the opportunity to start getting involved in different nonprofits. And it's like, I think it was about 10 years old, I started doing door-to-door -door fundraising for Greenpeace. And, uh, you know, and that was a really formative experience for me. Um, so you were basically just knocking on the door of people and you were trying to raise money for the, for, for the foundation? Yeah. Yeah. There was you know, different environmental causes that we were focused on throughout different periods of time. Like worked quite a bit for a little while on a fundraising program to try to stop elephant poaching. There was another one to try to create better standards around nuclear waste dumping. Like, you know, there were, there were different projects, but they were all ones that I was felt very connected to. And so yeah, 10, I mean, you know, technically I couldn't do that on my own. So like either my mom or dad would be there and they would just sort of like stand at the sidewalk and let me walk up to knock and have the conversation. And, but and, you and could that was just- really, You could really understand at 10 years old already the serious problem related to that topic. Like how was the kid, how was James as a child? seeing that part. I'm asking you this because I have a almost eight years old little girl and I would love that she will do that. I'm just curious, how did you see that during that time? I actually had a pretty substantial understanding of a lot of the problems. Um, obviously at, at 10, there are things that I couldn't really grasp and I couldn't fully make sense of the complexity of issues and how and why they would arise. And But I could still understand them enough to be really moved by them. And I think that I think that the educational system that most of us are exposed to really underestimates the capacity that children have to understand, to feel, to make sense of the world. Absolutely. And with the right exposures, I think there's just so much more that's possible. And that was one of the things that I was really fortunate around with my parents was they didn't have the same concept of what the limitations that children have are. And so I got exposed to a lot of things that were way past my years in terms of any kind of reasonable standard, but they actually had an impact and ended up shaping a lot of who I am. Like, you know, a good example for me was um, when I was about four and a half, five years old, uh, my mom decided to become a vegetarian and my dad didn't. My dad grew up as a steak and potatoes guy. It just <laughs> wasn't really his gig. And so then there was this question of, okay, well, what, what do the kids do? And rather than trying to battle about it, my parents decided that they were just going to give us the education on the topics and then let us make whatever decisions we wanted to. And so 
at around five years old, my parents started reading to me from a book called Diet for a New America, which at the time was this like really revolutionary book. It was the heir to Baskin Robbins throne who decided not to take it because of the implications of animal agriculture. And, you know, that book was not something that was really accessible to a five-year-old, but with the right support, it was, right? So they would read a section and then I would get to ask questions and be able to understand it in more simple language. And you know, so there I started to get this understanding of the environmental impacts of my choices. And I was like, oh, okay. So I don't want to do that anymore, right? And so at five years old, I made a decision to become a vegetarian. And it was like- but, And you are still a vegetarian, James? Yeah, I have been ever since. That's impressive. I think that people are just capable of a lot more than the world gives them credit for regardless of age, but I think particularly as children. And then I think what happens as children is so formative to how what we believe about ourselves when we become adults and what we think that we're able to do or not able to do. Yes, I truly believe in that. And actually you touch one of uh, one of the topic that you actually had a very beautiful TED talk that I will make sure to to tag it on the podcast. Um, it's actually one of the topic that I'm really fascinated as well about uh, empathy. And I see that um, in into the schools and really I can really compare the schools, the US schools and uh, the some private US schools actually, and then the, the, the public school in Switzerland where empathy is completely not a topic. The most important thing for, uh, for the kids, for the school is that the kids are very good in the language and in the mathematics. No empathy. Yeah, I mean, I think any place where people are intentionally teaching empathy is extraordinary. It's definitely not common within most educational systems I'm familiar with. It's not a primary topic matter, probably because it's it's not as quantifiable as a lot of the sciences are. Right? It's harder to define and measure empathy. To me, empathy is essentially the solution to how we fix most of the world's problems. There's so many different things that are going wrong in the world. And you know, one of the core common threads across all of them is that they're they're the result of human behavior and the things that we do as humans is largely from a place of extreme disconnect right we don't understand where our food comes from where all the different things that we purchase come from we don't understand what the implications of those are and in not understanding we also don't care as much because we don't have a connection to it and a lot of that has to a large extent been engineered Right. Many of the things that support our sort of standard way of living have all kinds of challenges associated with them, whether it's human rights violations or environmental breakdown. And so a lot of the larger businesses that work in those things do are able to sort of hide most of the damage associated, which then doesn't give people an opportunity to see what's happening and to care. And I believe that a deep focus on increasing empathy and having people be able to better not only understand the experience of others, other people, animals, the planet, etc., but being able to actually put themselves in the experience of the other and to feel what they feel. When you really feel what another person feels, it's almost impossible in my experience to not be motivated by it to want to do something to support, whether it's in a positive or negative light. Right? If they're suffering, there's this sort of intrinsic impulse to want to to lean in and to help support, to help take care. 
And if they're in a really great place, then it's contagious. And then there's a desire to lean in and celebrate together. Either way, it, it creates a positive forward movement. And so, you know, I've believed for a long time that the heavy focus on empathy and not only in childhood education, but in helping the full population be able to dive deeper into feeling and understanding the experiences of others is essentially the primary path forward where we then start to intrinsically make better decisions across all the different things we do in the world because we have a connection to what the impact actually is. So, for example, for our friends that they are listening now and they want to be part of this, let's call it movement, um, what they should do, how they should start to understand more about how to become empathic. I think that one of the best things that people can do as a practice is to get really good at arguing other people's point of views. And when I say arguing, I don't necessarily mean that in a aggressive or argumentative sense, but let's say that you have a conflict with a friend or a family member or a spouse, the natural orientation for almost everyone is to think that we're right and they're wrong. We just need to get them to understand our side and then everything will be fixed. But the challenge is that they think the same thing. And so then you end up in this place where there's just two people on opposing ends of something that don't really understand where the other one's coming from. And so one of the best things that you can do is try to get out of your own understanding, your own viewpoint as much as possible and allow yourself to fully step into the experience of the other person to the point that you could argue their point as well or better than they could and be able to, which you can't really do unless you actually allow yourself to fully understand it. I tend to think that that's a really useful practice and starting close to home is a very good way to do it. I mean, there's all kinds of extraordinary practices around trying to empathize with what it would be like to grow up in a different culture or a different socioeconomic class or any different kind of experience. But I think for a lot of people, it's it's easier to feel, it's more palpable when it's close to home. It also is harder because you have to overcome more of your own personal challenges. Uh, but if you take personal conflicts and allow yourself to explore deeply the validity of the other person's perspective and really let yourself understand that if you had the same experiences that they did, you would respond the same way that they are. It's really easy for us to get into this sort of self-righteous position of saying, oh, if I was in their circumstance, I wouldn't do that. Right? I would handle it differently. I would handle it better. But that's not really true. Right? If you were actually in their circumstance, you would almost certainly do the exact same thing. And it's only because you're still looking at it from a different lens that you're not getting that. And so letting yourself drop your own lens enough that you deeply get into the other perspective is a phenomenal way to build empathy. Yeah, I totally agree. And at the end of the day, we are all into it. In into this, we are all the same, and we are super connected. We start um, this nonprofit, which is called Omnis Live, when we uh, um, when we just start to have the problem with the COVID nineteen, and mm -hmm. um, we created this um, meditation every day, a meditation. Every day we had a new teacher and we believe in the power of togetherness. So there were people from all over the world that they were coming to meditate in one specific time for 20 minutes. And the power that has been created there, even so we were in so different places, we were feeling we are together. It was something, and I'm sure that some of our listeners, they were part of it because 
basically the podcast is kind of uh, the continuously of, of this. It was unbelievable, beautiful. So I really think that we are all together in this, you know, and um, uh, yeah, we have to yeah. help and support each other. That, that sounds like a beautiful experience. It was a very beautiful experience. Um, I'm very curious. The, the empathy was the main reason that you joined when you were 18 years old. You were joined as a taking over a school. Can you tell us this experience? What was the reason that you 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 did what you did with the with the school? <laughs> was it the empathy there, or what was the main reason? Empathy is definitely something that I learned very deeply as being part of that school. Um, I don't know if it was necessarily the primary driver in, in leaning into it. Empathy, I think, as a, as a cognitive framework, it's something that came a little bit later on in life for me. And around the time that I joined the school, was I was largely just focused on my own personal healing. And I was deeply inspired by the sort of profound healing and cathartic experiences I was seeing other people have. And I wanted to be part of that. So, I mean, I guess from that perspective, it's really easy to say that that was empathetic, right? Because I was, I was moved by watching people heal and I wanted to help more of that happen. It just wasn't necessarily the, the way that I was thinking about it at the time, um, but it was very inspirational. And yeah, that, that was an experience that very much shaped <laughs> my life. I, you know, I started at this school that taught alternative medicine and psychology um, and was Right around the time that I was graduating, um, the man who had founded it wanted to sort of semi-retire and he still wanted to do some teaching, but he wanted to sell the school. And so, and I was 18 at the time, so I ended up raising some money and buying the school from him and just sort of diving into the deep end, uh, right? I, I mean, at 18, I didn't have anywhere near the skill set or maturity to actually run an organization like that. But there was just so much passion that I was willing to do whatever it took. And yeah, I, I then spent almost 10 years there running the school and over time doing deeper and deeper trainings uh, around different aspects of sort of alternative psychology and then started to teach courses in it. You know, thinking back on it, the, the fundamentals of that school actually were very tied to empathy. The motto that we had for the school was heal or heal thyself. Wow. was this idea that you can't really help take someone to a place that you haven't been before. And if you haven't gotten comfortable breaking down, if you haven't gotten comfortable having really profound, cathartic type of healing experiences, you're not going to have the emotional bandwidth and wherewithal to take other people into those domains because they can be very vulnerable, very scary. And so, you know, we were thinking of it from more of like an educational perspective, but really what that is, is say, doing your own healing work, taking yourself into those own places allows you to understand and feel those experiences and others in a whole new way, which really is the basis of empathy. Yeah. And it, it was a school for, for all different kinds of ages. Um, yeah. I mean, it was, it was for adult education. So adult we were education. teaching, we were teaching courses allowed people to become certified as massage therapists and holistic health practitioners and nutritionists and things like that. But are more than other schools in that space, we had a very, very heavy focus in different forms of alternative psychology and deep underlying healing work. And that was 
I mean, I, I was interested in all the different aspects, but that was definitely the area that I was the most drawn to and still am, even though it's not necessarily as much a part of my day-to-day life the way that it was previously. But it's still there. I wanted to ask what is now happening with the school. Are you still keep an eye on, on, on the school or what, what is happening now with the school? No, I, um, I ended up selling the school in 2010. Uh, unfortunately, it didn't last much longer. The people who purchased it started to make a lot of changes really quickly and the student body sort of lost interest and the school ended up unfortunately closing, which was a tough experience for me because it was a place that I loved deeply and easily could have stayed for many more years. I just sort of hit a point where it felt like my next phase of evolution was to move elsewhere. But yeah, unfortunately, the school doesn't exist anymore, although a lot of the connections that were built there still do, even though it's many years later. I still have a number of very close friends who I developed from the school. And it's also a beautiful experience to get to watch how many of the people who went through courses together are still best friends and, you know, often still work together in healing practices because it is just so profoundly bonding when you go through those types of deep healing practices together. So beautiful. I'm very curious what now moving a little bit further, what made you to decide to use the medium of film to get to to the message out about medical cannabis, if we can move (laughs) for next. Yeah. So, so when I sold the school, I moved into the cannabis industry and I ended up starting a dispensary back in actually just a little before I sold the school. So in 2009, you know, things were very different back then. There was still much, much more stigma around the dangers of cannabis. And, you know, and I, I ended up having this really compelling experience when I first got into the space because you know, I had all of these patients that were coming in and, you know, there were clearly people who didn't really need it from a medical perspective, but I was shocked at how many people actually did. And just over and over again, I had people come in who were in some cases in life and death situations, right? Like using cannabis actually saved their life because it was uniquely positioned for whatever their disorder was. But the more common thing was quality of life, right? There were a lot of people that had severe injuries and were on extremely high doses of Oxycontin and Percocet and all these really powerful pain meds. And we were able to help get them either reduce or come off of the pain meds and use cannabis instead, which not only improved their health a lot, but I remember one man who had had a severe car accident, had a number of vertebrae fused, had been on huge amounts of pain meds. And over the course of a few months, we got him off and he's this big burly dude. And he walked into the office and he started crying. And he shared with me, he's like, you know, for the last three years, my life has felt like I was in a fog and I would pick up my children and I would try to play with them and I couldn't feel. And now I can feel, now I can appreciate the beauty in my children's eyes. And, you know, so I was seeing all these profound experiences and then these same people were terrified to let anyone in their world know that they were using cannabis because they didn't want to get fired or go to prison or get disowned. And so I was just like, wow, this is, this is wrong, right? You can't have something that's able to help people this much and have it be something that they're terrified will break down their life because of misunderstandings. And so I felt compelled to try to improve the understanding. And as I started to look at a lot of the educational materials that were out there at the time, there just wasn't anything that seemed like it was hitting the right message. There was some great 
medical journals, but those were way too technical and most people weren't going to bother to read them. And if they did, they probably wouldn't understand most of it. And then there was a bunch of you know, documentaries out there that actually had some good information, but they didn't have the right view. Right? Like it was a bunch of people with dreadlocks and tattoos sharing about the medical effects and right. that that's okay for a certain audience, but it's not when you're trying to appeal to the masses. And so I realized that there was just a necessity to be able to provide high quality, highly legitimized information from the kinds of sources where no one could question the validity. And so we ended up deciding to produce a documentary that basically only featured tenured research professors at major universities who had been hired by the federal government to do studies on cannabis. And in most circumstances, they were actually hired to study the negative effects. And inevitably what the research showed was that whatever negative effect they thought was going to happen wasn't there. And instead there was meaningful positive effects. And so these people who were like real researchers had flipped their position based on the data. And so honestly, the the documentary is a little dull because um, it's mostly talking head researchers, but it it served a really important role at that time in... It was needed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because it, it took a lot of people who were either anti-cannabis or were sort of on the fence and didn't understand, and it provided the information in a way that was compelling and it actually changed their positions. And it did it at a large enough scale that we started to see a lot of momentum following that around other quality education pieces coming out and you know, then a pretty rapid change in the pace of laws developing. And what yeah. do you think it was the main pushbacks that you saw to medical cannabis use on the legal front? There are some pushbacks that came due to usually not entirely informed medical concerns. So there's a lot of people who were worried that cannabis was highly addictive and that it was a gateway drug and would cause people to go down the path of using all kinds of other substances. Now, the research doesn't actually validate that, but it was a very common, and, and to some extent still is a common misunderstanding. But the biggest pushback was actually a moral one. You know, a lot of different religions and different ideologies have demonized the idea of being intoxicated from any number of different forms. And certain subsets of religious groups have kind of taken those concepts into extremes. And so they don't know how to look at things in a nuanced enough fashion, right? And so they think that anything that has a potential moral challenge will then just open up Pandora's box to all moral problems. And so one of the things I ran into a lot was that people figured out, you know, figured that if someone started using cannabis, then that was going to also have them become sex addicts and abusers and all kinds of other things. And there was just this sort of blanket association of anything that we don't understand that's morally questionable will cause the world to go downhill. And that's, you know, that I would say has probably been the hardest one to be able to overcome. Uh, because it's such a deeply ingrained ideology for a lot of people. But, but it I has ways in the last several years. I know that you are very much involved into that. And actually, I take this opportunity to congratulate you for uh, for one of the company that you sold into this field. 
Thank you. Yes, I'm, I'm very excited about that. We built a dispensary in San Diego that over the course of the last few years ended up becoming one of the largest dispensaries in the country. And I uh, just had an opportunity to complete a merger with public company in the space that owns a number of cannabis brands. Congrats, so, James. It's really impressive. I am very curious, how many companies did you found? Oh, God, I don't know. <laughs> it's okay, been a how lot. many successful ones, maybe? Or it's still uh, a difficult <laughs> number? Give me a well, number, approximately. Just that uh, my audience understand how successful you are. I've I've done, give or take, 25 organizations. Okay. Uh, and really that's a combination of both for-profit and non-profit. You know, probably five or six of those have been different kinds of non-profits. But yeah, it's impressive, James. That's really impressive. Thanks. I don't recommend it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it made sense for me at the times that I did the things I did. And you know, I had a lot of sort of unique callings and felt like you know, what I was doing with the companies was a way to be able to have real positive impact on the world. But, you know, as I've as I've grown up more and as I've done more things, I have started to focus more and more on wanting to have less things that I'm putting my attention into and putting a lot deeper attention into each one. And, and actually, you had a journey with that. You arrived in Mexico. Can you tell us uh, that your healing, can you share a little bit from your healing journey, why you arrived to heal and um, yeah, the whole uh, part of it, not actually uh, with how you arrived to Mexico and uh, how do you try to heal? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so this this sort of leads to how we got to eventually creating Neurohacker. Exactly. So when, so like I mentioned, I you know I ended up raising some money and buying that college at 18. And despite being in love with the work, I just wasn't qualified. And so I just worked pretty much around the clock in order to try to make up for the fact that I didn't know what I was doing. And so for the first like three years of the company, I pretty consistently worked like 18 and 20 hour days. And a lot of times I wouldn't even go home. I would just lay down in my office, nap for a couple of hours and then get back up and do more work. And I didn't, because I was so passionate about what I was doing, I wasn't paying attention to the toll that that was taking. And so by the time I was 21, I had hit a pretty severe degree of burnout and I ended up getting diagnosed with stage three adrenal exhaustion. Um, and I was just in this sort of like exhausted, depressive fog. And then that created an existential crisis for me because here I am doing this work that I'm really passionate about and I'm so tired and depressed that I can barely get myself to want to do anything, which was very confusing. So that kind of caused me to go down my own healing journey and figure out how could I reverse the damage. You know, I was working in alternative medicine, so I had a lot of exposure to different things. And there was quite a lot that I tried, much of which was beneficial. But the thing that really turned life around for me profoundly was that I got introduced to this research physician in Mexico who developed an IV therapy to rapidly heal neurotransmitter damage. And he'd actually developed it for treatment of people who had damage from severe drug abuse. But when I went and met with him, he was like, you know, the, the lack of sleep and the amount of stress that you've been under physiologically creates a really similar experience to if you had been a heroin addict for the last few years. So I think this will work for you. 
So I went down and I did this three-day IV drip and it completely changed my world. Like it was just a, in three days. Yeah, it, it was like unreal how profound the experience was for me. Because I, I went in just entirely unable to focus. I would by the time that I was finishing a sentence, I would forget where it started. I mean, I I was in pretty bad shape. Over the course of the three days, it was like the lights just turned back on. And all of a sudden I could think more clearly. And not only back to where I had previously experienced, but there was these types of cognitive clarity that I just never had before and all the depressive sort of tendencies went away and I started feeling much more motivated much more capable but then the thing about that experience that was actually the most profound for me was that my empathy went through the roof and like empathy was always something that I had valued from a sort of cognitive perspective but I didn't necessarily feel it and get it in the same way and when I went through this therapy it became something where I couldn't actually think about what I wanted to do in the world without automatically feeling what the impact of those actions were going to be. And I just felt deeply connected to sort of all of life around me and had this sort of sense of ability to feel into the experiences of others. Um, and so as I was feeling into that experience, this sort of aha went off and I was like, wow, you know, if, if there was a way that we could make this kind of thing accessible to people broadly, this could change the world. Like if we could actually make people this much more intelligent, this much more motivated, more capable, improve their sort of sense of how they feel about themselves, and at the same time, make them more empathetic. Well, now you've potentially got hundreds of thousands or millions of more people who are intelligent, capable, motivated, and because of empathy, intrinsically oriented to use that capacity, not only for their own gain, but for the greater good of humanity. And I just got this deep inspiration. I was like, wow, we need to figure out how to expose this to the world. And, and so did I you know, did you know the treatment that uh, you received? You know, at the time I didn't. Um, over time, I've had an opportunity to kind of study up on it more and come to understand what was in there. Um, but at the time, I I was sort of going on faith because I just was in bad shape and needed to. You know, the primary active ingredient was a molecule called NAD, uh, which is the sort of primary energy source for cells. Um, and then there was a bunch of different amino acids. And there was an ingredient that was never fully identified. And I think based on some of the effects, I have a sense of what it is, but never was able to fully verify that. Um, because a doctor um, died after quite a short time, no? This yeah. One so, of the yeah. When, when I got that inspiration to say, like, we need to make this accessible to everybody, I went and sat down with the doctor who had created it. And I was like, can I partner with you? I want to open clinics all over the world. We'll have a for-profit arm that will fund a non-profit arm for the people who can't afford it. And... You know, and he was a really beautiful man who had you know, developed this from a place of deep caring. So he was like, yeah, this sounds great. We started working on it. And just a few weeks later, he got a severe case of pneumonia and passed away. Unfortunately, most of his research went away with him. Uh, a lot of it wasn't fully documented or fully accessible. And so I still had this inspiration, but now I didn't have a way to do it. I talked to all kinds of neuroscientists and biologists and chemists and you know, everyone that I could find. And I told them about this sort of grand idea that I had. And I was like, you know, could you 
could you make the chemistry work? <laughs> and everyone was like, you know, it's a beautiful concept, but you're just asking for too much. It's not possible. And so it took a long time before things actually started to materialize. How many? Web- how long? Like how many years? <sighs> Right after that experience, I probably spent a year or two traveling around trying to find scientists that could help. And then I ended up putting it on the back burner because I just wasn't getting anywhere. And it wasn't until six years ago. So there was probably a eight year gap or so between. But about six years ago, I, so I was at Burning Man and I was doing acid and went by myself out into the deep desert and was basically having a sort of vision quest and I got this profound sort of re-inspiration that came through that said this idea that you had is too important not to do whatever it takes find a way and on the drive home from Burning Man I started to share this inspiration with my brother and when he really got the scope of what it was that I was talking about and how profound of a potential change agent it could be he was like okay I'll partner with you him partnering with me is what made the science real. His background is in complex system science and you know, he is, he's focused his work on think tanks focused on solving for existential risk, but his, he has a very unique intelligence, very unique capacity that you know, very rarely come across in the world. And because of his complex systems background, he has the ability to sort of look at and study any field and understand it very deeply from a multidisciplinary sort of approach. And uh, so he, he helped develop effectively a new model of science for how we could study human physiology and then how we could design products to be able to dramatically improve quality of life and increase human performance. And so we spent about two years doing full-time R&D before we came out with the first product that we felt like was of sufficient quality to be worth putting out into the world. It's not the same kind of impact that the IV treatment was because it's basically impossible to do that without intravenous work, but we were able to create something that really was profound that had people having significant improvements in all types of cognitive function that had people reporting being more motivated, more capable, more present and a lot of people talking about feeling more empathetic and you know many people wouldn't necessarily use those words because empathy is not a super common term in the english language um, but they would describe it in their own ways and essentially that's what they were describing the way that they were more present to their world the way that they could better understand the experiences of their partners their loved ones yeah so that that was basically the birth of neurohacker was this impulse to see if with the right kinds of chemistry approach could we create something that would allow people to have a significantly improved subjective experience of life to feel better about themselves more motivated more intelligent and to have people be more present and more empathetic at the same time um, and you know i think we've been able to do a pretty good job of it so far so now we are, I, I'm very curious to speak more about Neurohacker because I have so many friends that they are completely addicted by, by what you created. I tried and I loved it. I actually discovered that you have uh, the Qualia Mind Caffeine Free 
uh, and I, I love knowing that. Um, so basically, first question, what is the difference between nootropics and vitamins? So they're both just sort of different classes of compounds, right? So like same as like vitamins or minerals. Nootropics, people use the term very differently, but what it really means is a some type of chemical that improves one or more aspect of cognitive function with limited to no downside. Right? So there are things like Adderall that people will take for cognitive improvement, which definitely improves cognitive health, but does have downsides. So that wouldn't typically be considered a nootropic. And then there are things that you know have various different health benefits and don't have downsides, but aren't specifically oriented around cognitive. And then those are also not nootropics, but anything that's improves brain performance with limited to no downside is basically a nootropic. So there's a lot of common things that people are aware of, like, you know, ginkgo biloba uh, or caffeine or theanine, like some really common ones. And then, you know, as the field has grown, there started to be a lot of research into all kinds of different compounds that are maybe a little bit more obscure, but have really profound effects. And that is largely the domain we play in. I mean, we work with all kinds of natural ingredients, whether or not they're nootropics, but because the brain plays such an important role in essentially all facets of health and physiology, uh, nootropics is definitely a major area that we focus on when we're doing research and product development. And you have different products. Can you tell us a little bit more about the the products that um, you are selling? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, we talked a little bit about Qualia Mind already, right? And that's our right. our main sort of flagship brain product. And that's definitely what we're most known for. Why do doing. you think? Well, I mean, partly it's the first product category that we launched, right? So it's, it's kind of what we built our brand around. Um, but it's also something that's just a very common need. There's very few people at this point who don't want some kind of improvement in brain performance and improvement in how they feel, whether they're actually struggling with something or whether they just want to have an even sharper sense of senses to be more competent. It's a pretty ubiquitous need. And I think that because of the sort of approach to science that we've taken and, and just how much research we put into every product, we've been able to create something that actually has very profound effects and has you know, caused us to develop a pretty strong reputation within the field as the product that will have the most significant impact on someone's brain health. So, so basically, qual Qualia Mind uh, was made to help you focus better, decrease procrastination, and have more energy. And I know that you really can see, feel the benefits, even in 40 minutes, which is amazing. Mm -hmm. That is something I'm really proud of. I mean, it's, it's yeah. honestly, from Congrats. a scientific perspective, very, very difficult to create something that will provide that much of a experience where you actually feel it without having negative health consequences. You know, I mean, obviously you can take just a huge amount of caffeine and you're going to feel a lot sharper and more peppy, but you're going to crash hard and it's going to have other consequences. So to be able to do both, you know, something I'm really, really proud of the team for. But yeah, so, you know, brain performance is definitely what we're most known for. And But then you have you have years. longevity, which is like who doesn't want to take those? I mean, it's 
yeah, the longevity product is is awesome. That was sort of our next area that we focused on after brain health was we wanted to see, you know, could we improve life expectancy? But, you know, that was sort of, honestly, that was sort of secondary. The real primary focus was, could we improve what we refer to as health span? If you can live longer, that's great, but only if you're actually in quality health. If the last few years of your life, you're you know, bedridden or suffering, it's not necessarily what people want. So, you know, we wanted to look at how can we improve health across all systems and have people be healthy for as long as humanly possible and hopefully have that even move into increasing life expectancy. And so, you know, there we took an approach basically trying to improve cellular health so that we were improving things from the most fundamental level. So that product is oriented around increasing the amount of energy that cells produce and increasing cellular metabolism. And as a result, it has you know, broad positive effects on pretty much every system of human physiology. Um, so been really, really proud of that product and have had just extraordinary feedback on it. Um, just recently had an opportunity to complete pilot study that was very promising and has got us excited to tee up several more studies on the product. And then after longevity, we moved into a focus on sleep. And so we have a product that we launched a little under a year ago called Qualia Night. And it's a very different approach to sleep. Yeah, so, you have to tell me because sleep is such an important topic. And it's so like, we all love this topic. And I think it's really in trend, let's say like that. And I'm happy to see that. But tell me more about that because it's super interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, most of the sleep products that exist, whether they're natural or pharmaceutical, the vast majority of them are sedatives. So it's something that you take right before bed and it's designed to sort of help knock you out so that you get more time of sleep. And, and there are times where that's a really important approach, but that wasn't really our focus at all. So in our product, there's no sedatives and you don't take it right before bed. You actually take it around dinner time a few hours prior to bed. And what it's designed to do is to improve the quality of your sleep, right? So there we're, we're aiming for not necessarily increasing the number of hours, but increasing the amount of restoration that occurs during sleep. I have to say that product has changed my life pretty profoundly because as a serial entrepreneur who has ran anywhere from like three to eight companies at a time for most of my adult life, I have had a lot of sleep issues. And it's hard to shut off from that much stimulus. And since I've started taking Qualia Night, I actually at this point do sleep more hours than I used to. But more important than that was that even when I didn't extend the number of hours, I just woke up feeling so much more refreshed and more aware. Um, and just caused my whole next day to go phenomenally better. And now that I've had the opportunity to be on the product for several months, it's like it's really been a profound change in my quality of life. Yeah, I think sleep is so important and um, it's really impressive what this Qualia Night it's called, right? Yeah, Qualia Night. It's uh, give clean, lasting energy, enhance mental and athletic performance, boost memory and productivity, promote alertness and focus. Then, yeah. then you have uh, immunity as well, which is super, very <laughs> important topic for us now, yeah. especially. Yeah, that's one of the more recent products that we've developed. Um, and 
we just we took a, a complex system science approach to understanding immune health and then you know, trying to create something that would systemically improve immune function. Again, it's just it's not really like anything else on the market. Um, it's it's a much more complex product, but it allows for immune support in ways that a number of other products don't. And yeah, very excited about it and and excited about a lot of the things that we have coming up over the course of the next year. Yes, I wanted to ask, and I don't know how much you want to share, but I would love to get some uh, more information about you. What's next? Yeah, I mean, there, there's several products that we're working on, and some of them are too early phase to know whether or not the research is going to get us to the endpoint that we're looking for. But some of them we've progressed quite far. Uh, so there's actually one that we're, we've finished testing on, and we're now in production around a product called Qualia Vision. And this is it's still a supplement, but here the focus is the protection of blue light. So this is less focused on improving eyesight and more focused on being able to reduce the damage from excessive screen time and excessive blue light. And I think that, you know, I mean, this has been an issue for years and years, but particularly over this last year or so where people aren't working in person as much, we're spending even that much more time on screens doing Zoom meetings and everything. And you know, you're starting to hear a lot more challenges of people having severe eye strain and you know, headaches and all kinds of things that come from blue light exposure. So we designed this product to be able to help mitigate those effects. Um, that one will be coming out here pretty shortly. And then uh, there's another product that we're in testing around, but the testing is going really well and I believe we'll be able to go into production soon, which is a product that we're, we're tentatively calling Glow but it's, it's sort of a, a beauty from within approach and appearance through nutritional support. We're pretty far through the testing right now and all of the early data is showing really positive signs. I'm sure uh, all the ladies now, they are very <laughs> interested by this topic. Sounds yeah. amazing. Who doesn't yeah. want to glow? Exactly. That's really, really, it's really, I can't wait. I can't wait for what's next. And uh, I want to really congratulate you for everything that you are doing. It's really, it's really impressive. Thank you. I appreciate it. It's, it's been in quite a journey through life. And I've been, been excited to be able to be part of a lot of projects that I think have had significant impact and hopefully will continue to do more so as, you know, as we look to the future. James, I have two more questions for you. Um, first one, I know that we spoke about sleep, but I'm very curious. At the beginning of our discussion, I saw that you are wearing Aura Ring. Mm-hmm. And uh, do you have, can you measure with Aura Ring the, um, the results that you can have with the sleep qualia night? I think the answer is yes. Um... You know, I, I can't say so definitively at this point. We're actually exploring the idea of trying to incorporate Aura Ring into an upcoming study. That would be super but, interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, I love the Aura Ring. I think that, you know, I of the terrible devices, like they've really done a great job of being able to get pretty accurate sleep data. And I think that's just such an important thing to be able to track so that we can understand the things that actually improve or, you know, or create problems. I can say from my own experience, because I've been using the Aura Ring now for, I don't know, but a number of years. Um, so I've been able to see sleep trends over a long period of time. And when I started taking Qualia Night, 
I started seeing personally between about a 20 and 30% increase in both REM and deep sleep uh, on the nights where I would take it versus the nights where I wouldn't. Amazing. So, you know, that's obviously not a large scale study that <laughs> says that that's definitive. <laughs> um, but from my personal experience, it mapped like what I've seen in the aura data maps very closely to what I subjectively feel. So I'm, I'm excited about the promise of you know, future studies where we have the opportunity to do this at a much larger scale with a lot of participants and actually quantify it. And so that's, that's a space that we're definitely looking to right now. My last question, most of uh, our um, audience, they are in on their healing journey and you were in your healing journey, what will be one advice that you will give to the ones that they are starting their healing journey now? It's a great question. You know, I, I could take that in so many different angles, but in the moment, what comes to me is be kind to yourself. I think that so many of us, as we start to go down our healing journeys, and particularly if we're going down journeys where there's a lot of trauma to heal or we're, we're trying to battle our demons, we can have a tendency of becoming really critical on ourselves and the criticalness often actually reinforces the pain and you know what what we understand of human behavior or really any mammal behavior is people respond better to positive reinforcement than they do to negative and so i think that being really kind to oneself when on the healing journey and going out of your way to really appreciate and celebrate yourself for all the steps that you take more so than you focus on beating yourself up for all the steps that you miss is a really important part of how to progress through all kinds of challenges in as easeful and beautiful of a way as possible. And I will say that's not at all my approach. <laughs> it, you know, I mean, it has become in later years as I've done a lot more healing work. And so that's sort of one of the things that I've learned through now a couple of decades of being deeply involved in personal development. But I think that had I understood that earlier on, there are a lot of hardships through the healing process that I would have been able to avoid or minimize while still getting most of the same positive effects. Thank you so much, James, for taking this time and for sharing part of your learnings. Mm, thank you. This was really delightful. I, I'm glad we got a chance to meet and I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. Wow, what a conversation. Thank you so much, dear James, for all your learnings that you share with us today. I really have to say that um, after I had this uh, beautiful discussion with you, I start to be even much more aware about empathy. And I really hope that everyone that they are listening now are trying to focus more on that because it's only up to us to make this world to be more beautiful. For more inspiring interviews, head it over on Spotify, Google Podcast, iTunes, or wherever you are listening now. I have more surprises coming soon. If you like today's show, please share it with your friends, family, or community. I'm Krina, and you've been listening to the podcast How Can I Heal with Krina Okumos.